This morning we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 10. So if you would, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. And as you do so, I'm going to shut my mouth for just one second, take a sip of this water so I can put this thing down. Nehemiah chapter 10. Last time we were together in Nehemiah chapter 9, we covered the whole chapter, and it's kind of going to be a blitz to the end of the book, uh, so just kind of hold on tight. Um, We saw in Nehemiah chapter 9 that at the end of that seventh month, that that month of of three festivals and, and feasts, the people gathered at the end of this month to confess their sin and to repent of their sin. And there was this glorious prayer in chapter 9. It wasn't enough for them to just say that they were sorry, and they needed to express the sincerity in their desire to serve the Lord wholeheartedly and passionately as they confessed their sin. They needed to repent And as we know, with repentance, it involves a turning from something, from sin, and we are turning to something, turning toward the Lord. And in chapter 9 was the beginning of that repentance as they confessed the, the greatness of God and His mercy, His grace, His love, His provision, and His goodness throughout history. They almost recall, there's like this synopsis of, of Israel's history and God's goodness and glory toward them, and then how they have only failed and sinned and neglected God's word and turned from them, and yet the Lord still was faithful to his promises and delivered them over and over again. They were in all of God, and they were broken of their sin. It's amazing we can be both. In fact, often that's what comes. Here in chapter 10, they now turn to the Lord in a covenantal commitment, in a covenant, which means they turn toward the Lord in His Word, they're turning from sin, and they're now turning toward His Word, and they're committing themselves individually and corporately to be obedient to God's Word. We have to remember once again, just kind of be in all of this, that they're at this point again after a whole month of studying God's Word, reading God's Word, hearing God's Word taught and applied to their lives, the daily teaching, daily worshiping. And this is where they are. They're now renewing their commitment to the Lord. Let's look at chapter 10. And we're going to read most of the, most of the chapter together, starting in verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, and if you look back to verse 38, you'll see what he's talking about by the, the seals. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malachachah, Hatush, ding, 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 red flag. Shebaniah, Maluk, dot, 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 verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, 
the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, with nobles, or their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in the Lord God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our, the Lord, our Lord and his rules and his statutes. Verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters to be our sons. And if the people of the land bring goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year in the exactation of every debt. We will also take on ourselves the obligation to yearly give a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, the appointed feast, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the food offering and to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of of our ground and the first fruits of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. It is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of our house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes of the house of our God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and our sons of Levi shall bring the contributions of grain, wine, oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers, we will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to see and to hear his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. And on Memorial Day, we like to gather for hamburgers and hot dogs and picnics and beach and having lots of wonderful fun together. And I think we absolutely should do that if you're able to do that. But Memorial Day is where we are also to reflect and to remember those who gave their lives to the service of our country. So in honor of that and to 
introduce my sermon this morning, I want to read to you the ethos of the Navy SEALs, a group that we have all now become very familiar with, I think, unfortunately, to, their, to them uh, because of our wars that we've had recently and their role in, those, in those, their combat roles. Let's read this. This is the ethos of the Navy SEALs. In times of war or uncertainty, there is a special breed of warrior ready to answer our nation's call. Common citizens with uncommon desire to succeed. Forged by adversity, they stand alongside America's finest special operations forces to serve their country, the American people, and protect their way of life. I am that warrior. My trident is a symbol of honor and heritage bestowed upon me by heroes that have gone before. It embodies the trust of those I have sworn to protect. By wearing the trident, I accept the responsibility of my chosen profession and way of life. It is a privilege that I must earn every day. My loyalty to country and team is beyond reproach. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow Americans, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition for my actions. I voluntarily accept the inherent hazards of my profession. Isn't that funny? They call it inherent hazards. Placing the welfare and security of others before my own. I serve with honor on and off the battlefield. The ability to control my emotions and my actions, regardless of circumstance, sets me apart from others. Uncompromising in integrity is my standard. My character and my honor are steadfast. My word is my bond. We expect to lead and to be led. In the absence of orders, I will take charge, lead my teammates to accomplish the mission. I lead by example in all situations. I will never quit. I persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and to accomplish our mission. I am never out of the fight. We demand discipline. We expect innovation. The lives of my teammates and the success of our mission depend on me, my technical skill, my tactical proficiency, and attention to detail. My training is never complete. We train for war and to win the fight. I stand ready to bring the full spectrum of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and the goals established by my country. The execution of my duties will be swift and violent when required, yet guided by the very principles that I serve to defend. Brave seals have fought and died building upon the proud tradition and feared reputation that I'm bound to uphold. In the worst of conditions, the legacy of my teammates steadies my resolve and silently guides my every deed. I will not. This is the ethos of the Navy SEALs. Very simple philosophy, something that read once, we all can understand and the expectations that they all have. It's easy to read. It's easy to understand. 
But the reality is that only few can ever live up to those standards for very good reason. As Christians, those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, our ultimate commitment is not to a government or to a state, but our commitment is to the Lord Jesus Christ who has redeemed us. The Navy SEALs commit themselves ultimately to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States and the peoples that it represents. But here in Nehemiah 10, the returned exiles are led to commit themselves to the Scriptures and to each other. In verses 1 through 27, you can see in your Bibles, is, a, is another list of names. And I know how y'all love lists and get ready, we got a massive one next week. They've committed themselves. And that's what this list represents, is a list of people that this is those who have sealed the deal. They literally signed the covenant. They put their seal on the covenant. In verses 28 through 29, sets up for us the terms of the covenant. All the Jewish groups of, of people that all agreed there, all of them there who agreed, they sealed the covenant. And there's another group, a group that was different from the Jewish groups that are included in this list. It says there that, uh, and I think this is verse 28, pretty sure, included are those who it says, those who have separated themselves and have a knowledge and understanding. Separated themselves from all the peoples of the land and to the law of God and all who have a knowledge and understanding. This is a totally different group of people. This is a group of people that are not Jews but they are Gentiles. They were Gentiles. But they converted. They committed themselves to the word of God. And as it says here, they gain, have a knowledge of the understanding of God's word. This is amazing to me. Amazing to me that, that this, these people, these people from the nations, these Gentiles were drawn in and then separated themselves from the nations because of the word of God that transformed God's people and called them into holiness. And as it says, all the Jews and this group of Gentiles that converted into Judaism, verse 29 says, entering into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the, of the Lord our Lord and his rules and statutes. This means they are making a covenant. They are renewing the covenant that they once had as a, as a people under the, the, the laws of, of Moses and the renewal of this com covenant. Their commitment to this covenant is to be obedient to this covenant to actually follow God's word. We've been hearing God's word all this month. We need to be obedient. We need to commit ourselves to this 
covenant. We need to marry ourselves to this covenant to be obedient to it. And in the covenant stated in chapter 10, there are these different things that they say very specifically that we're not going to do and very specifically the things that we are going to do. And in those various commitments, I have identified them into three different categories. And I think if you boil down all of life, I believe that it's these three categories that we are striving in, in one way or another. To honor the Lord and by being obedient to Him through His Word. These three categories are family, work, and church. How simple is that, right? We should all strive for these. Family, work, and church. So, the first 27, again, are all the names that signed the, the covenant. Prominently, the very beginning is Nehemiah, right? Why? Because he's the gov. So he's up first, and he's writing the thing. He's putting his name up top, right? And then there's the other name that we recognize. That's why we read all the way to verse 4. This guy named Hattush, right? And you guys re might remember a couple months back, we did a list where Hattush was, the, was like the whole point of the sermon because Hattush is in the line of Christ. And this is God preserving his remnant to bring about his son. So here's this guy we never heard of, Hattush, is a son of David. Jesus, who's Jesus, right? Jesus is the son of God, but also in lineage to the son of David. Now, this list in these 27 verses is obviously not exhaustive. It's long, but it's not exhaustive. It's representative, right? So these are the, the family heads that are coming together for their family to make the people's commitment. Now, What's very important here, must not be missed, is that they made a list of names. They made a list of names. And it's very obvious what families are in and what families are out. That's significant for us. Because here, as the, as the, the people of God, they're putting their name down. They're saying, I'm in. I'm, I'm in. I'm, I'm down with all of this. I want this in my life. I want my family to be in covenant. This is what I want my heritage and legacy to be, is to follow God. This is certainly an implication to us for the necessity of church membership. It's not explicit here, of course, right? Nehemiah is referring to a people, a Jewish people in this nation. But the principle is the same, that God's people should always know within the church who is in and who is not. And membership does that. Here at Sovereign Grace, we could point to our membership list, as well as to our official church Co covenant, the copy that we have where each member who has joined our church, who has agreed to be in covenant, has literally, physically write, wrote their name, signed their name with everyone else to be in covenant. Just like here in Nehemiah 10. I've had a few discussions over the, over the years of people who have 
thought about joining the church or had questions about uh, church membership, and, and, and they didn't want to agree to the covenant in the ways that we have agreed to the covenant. Not that they didn't agree with it biblically or morally and that they would pursue those things if they were a member, but they believed that it would be legalistic or is legalistic for a church to hold this set of values or morals and theological commitments up to someone and say, you must not only live up to these, but also sign your name to it. Is the covenant that we hold to legalistic? Is the covenant in Nehemiah chapter 10 legalistic? Legalism implies that you must hold to these things in order to be righteous. You must obtain and do these things in order to gain salvation and righteousness before the Lord. But in our own confession, as a church, we don't believe that. We believe that God redeems us first, saves us first, and then we commit. Is that not the same case in Nehemiah chapter 10? Have these people not already been mercifully redeemed, brought out of exile? Before we, before we commit ourselves to believe, repent, or obey, the Lord redeems us first. The Lord saves us first. The Lord makes us into, transforms us into a new creation. And it's because we have been mercifully redeemed in Christ that we commits. And the same here. God has already redeemed them, so they enter into covenant. They are responding to the mercy that God had already shown them. Look again, if you doubt that, look again to the prayer in chapter 9. How they are recurring, recalling, excuse me, over and over again, God's mercy and love, one right after another. The argument of abiding to a covenant is being legalistic, and that's with the uh, presupposition that the covenant isn't legalistic, that it is biblical. The argument of abiding to a biblical covenant, then, is false when the Lord has already done the work of redemption. Now, this first part of the covenant, I believe they address the family. In verse 30, very concisely speaks to the commitment to not allow intermarriage of their sons or their daughters to non-Jews. You might remember back in Ezra, we dealt with this unfortunate history of intermarriage uh, to Jews who were marrying non-Jews. And unfortunately, in chapter 13 of Nehemiah, we're going to see that some will break this covenant. So we're not going to belabor the point too much here because we're going to address it again in a couple weeks. The one thing we do have to say, again, is that this sin of intermarriage in verse 30 wasn't a point of racism. This wasn't a point of saying that we are a much higher regarded people than this other people. We're not 
morally superior based upon our race, but this was a matter of holiness. That's the whole point here, is holiness. The surest way to corrupt the people of God is to destroy their families. And the quickest way to destroy a family is to have them unequally yoked in the most basic of ways in religion. Did David not set, set an unfortunate precedent for his son, Solomon? Look how Solomon turned out. He just multiplied it. A hundred squared. Look how he treated marriage and who he married. How did that turn out for Israel as well as for Solomon? The breakdown of Israel started in the family and that trickled into all of society. If both parents were followers of God, they would obey what Deuteronomy 6 says, we read it a few weeks ago, to train their children in the word of God. How could marriage be what God intended it to be if the man and the wife were not united on this one most important fundamental question? A one flesh union without agreement on God, on who he is and how to worship him. To our cultural standards, this is a harsh imposition. But it was fundamental to the structure of their culture, their society, and their families. It was a fundamental point of holiness. And this commitment in verse 30 was a commitment to ensure the next generation would love the Lord and know the Lord who delivered them. This is where our commitment to the Lord starts, doesn't it? It starts in our homes. The immediate application here, of course, is for you single Christians to marry like-minded Christians, but again, as we see in this passage, it's not just about checking the box. It's not just about checking the box. Oh, they're a Christian. In marriage, we are to show the relationship that Christ has for his church in the new covenant, which is the gospel. In our marriages, we are displaying the gospel. Therefore, we should be absolutely equally yoked. We are not only to secure the future of the gospel in our families, but we are displaying the gospel to the world. Therefore, we must put a commitment. We must have a commitment in our homes, in our hearts, single, married, with families, to put away sin in our homes, to no longer be intermarried with the world, and their sin. Whether you are married or you are single, the question is, is are you pursuing holiness in your home? Are you committed to honoring the Lord in your family? The second category in this covenant is their work. In verse 31, we see how the covenant shifts from speaking to family to now speaking of 
the Sabbath and the Sabbath day. The Sabbath pertains to that one day of the week, Saturday in their case, where all of God's people were commanded to, to not work, but to, but to rest. This is the fourth commandment, which extends all the way back to creation, when after God had created all things, God created everything, and then what did God do? He rested. God rested. In verse 31, they reiterate this command. You see that there? They reiterate the command to, to keep the Sabbath holy. But they reiterate it in a way that closes the loophole. It closes the loophole that so many were, were trying to do, meaning, hey, we're not working on the Sabbath. It's them who is bringing us the stuff. It's them out there that's bringing us those, those things. They close the, the loophole. Very smart, right? So, keeping the Sabbath, as you might feel in your own way, that keeping the Sabbath is evidence of faith. For them, keeping the Sabbath was an evidence of faith because there's always something that they could be doing. There's always something that could be doing. They, they don't have Instapots where they can set it Saturday night or Friday night and then for it to kick on in the morning and then they have all their meals prepped. We have Instapots. They don't. They have to prepare. I mean, there, and there's always something for them to be doing. There's always something for them to, to be doing. And so to keep the Sabbath is a measure of faith. And so in the Sabbath, God has built something into it for his people to see. And that is so that they would trust in him. They would trust in him for their, for their work. And that they could trust him that if they rest this one day a week, they could trust in the Lord. One of the struggles that many churches are having now after we are moving out of this pandemic mode of culture is that not a lot of church members are coming back to church. Some of them are still sending their tithes and still, in a sense, participating in those ways, but they're so out of spiritual shape that they're not coming back to church. And why? Because some of them are, I think some of them are still fearful of things, right? And that's a separate issue. But I think that there's a swath of people who have seen what they now can do on a Sunday. We can go boating. We can go fishing. We can go hunting. We can get to the restaurant before all the Baptists do. We can do all of these things that we couldn't do before. There is always something else that they could be doing. There's always more work that they could be getting done. But the Lord had built in the Sabbath faith. The trust that resting and being obedient is better than working. 
Verse 31 also addresses another idea of rest, of the sabbatical year. The sabbatical year, verse 31, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year. The Mosaic law had three great provisions for rest. The Sabbath, sabbatical, sabbatical year, sabbatical year, and jubilee. Every seven years, they were to let the land lie and rest. They weren't to grow anything. Now, we're like, that's like almost a year off for these people, right? That's, you know, there's probably more things to do, but, man, you don't have to farm. You know, that sounds good. But not if you're supposed to grow crops, not if that is your livelihood, not if this is how the whole entire nation is to, is to eat and to survive. How are we going to survive the next planting season? How are we going to have the seed for the eighth year if we skip the seventh year? Well, to comply with a whole year of not farming, think about the faith that would require. What would they do for food and income during that seventh year? I am not sure if you happen to catch it, but the answer was in God's word that we read this morning in Leviticus 25. And God is very clear that if you keep my word, you will dwell in the land securely, and the land will yield its fruits. And if you ask, and this is quoting now, this is quoting now from Leviticus 25, verse 20. What shall we eat in the seventh year? Right? That's the question. God, if we're not farming, what are we going to eat? If we're not allowed to sow or gather in our crop, verse 21, this is the Lord saying, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Wait, what? You mean I grow once and it's threefold? Yup. It's as easy as that. Verse 22, when you sow in the eighth year, so this is now after the seventh, here's number eight, you will be eating some of the old crop and you shall eat the old crop until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The Lord never commands without providing. Faith to believe that God would do that. And faith is believing God's word, trusting in his promises that he will provide and then acting upon that faith in obedience to his commands. Verse 31 also speaks of how they are to cancel everyone's debt, which is probably the, the most difficult of all the things to do. The faith required to, to cancel each other's debt. We talked about debt a couple weeks ago in Nehemiah when they were building the wall. There were those who were exacting an exorbitant amount of debt upon people because they're there building the wall and they weren't able to maintain their, their farms and their crops and their businesses. They, the Lord gets on them for that, to repent of that. So the question comes down to these things in verse 31 is can they trust the Lord? Can they trust his word? Can they trust God with their work and with their money? Now we can spend 
some time debating the Sabbath, and, and some of y'all have different opinions about, about the Sabbath and how you're to observe the Sabbath, but however, where all of us should land is that as Christians who trust in Christ, we rest in Him. We rest in Him alone. However, the overall principles of these commands are also true for us. It's about faith. In our work, we are trusting the Lord, and we're trusting in the Lord for His promises to us in Christ, in particular to our areas of work and money. You go back to the Gospel of Luke, where we spent three years in Luke, and we dealt several times of all the different ways that Jesus talked about money. Can we trust in Jesus' words when He talked to us and showed us the way that we are to treat money and we are to treat work? We are to work hard. That, as Ephesians, I think, 6 says, that we are to work as unto the Lord. To give our very best in all of our labors. Whatever we do, whether it be accounting or cooking or serving, cleaning, teaching, plowing, tilling, harvesting, studying, reading, creating, Writing, selling, helping. But to remember that all we have, all that we gain, all that we achieve, all that we earn is the Lord's. And we are only stewards of what the Lord has given us. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. What we do is not our own own. It is for His glory. We glorify God in our bodies with all that we do, with all that we create. It's for the glory of God. And we are created to work. But in our work, as they have done, and as easy as it is for us, it is easy to lose sight of work's end. We are to work faithfully as unto the Lord, not living for what we can buy, because treasures on earth will ultimately be destroyed. But treasures in heaven cannot be taken or diminished or destroyed. Commit to honoring the Lord in your work and trust that we can rest in Him. Lastly, the third category is church. I use the term church for us, but for them, it was temple worship. And if you look at the rest of the covenant, verses 32 through 39, there's all these commitments that deal with their worship. They're serving the Lord and serving each other. Nine times in this section does it say their commitment to supporting the worship of God in the temple. 
and that it all points to everything that pertains to the worship of Yahweh. Verse 39 sums it up at the very end. You'll see that it says, we will not neglect the house of our God. So in each of these commitments, the yearly shekel, the giving of showbread, the grain offering, the burnt offering for the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the sin offerings, the wood for all the offerings, the bringing of the first fruits year after year, the firstborn sons and the cattle that are committed to them, the first of all the dough, the wine, the oil, and all the tithes and offerings. All of these provisions and all of these offerings is what is required for the worship of God at the temple. And the worship of God enables Israel to enjoy the presence of God. If you want to go to the beach tomorrow, you need a car to get to the beach. And in said car, you need petrol. Gasoline. Or if you have an EV, you need electricity, which is made by a nuclear power plant. You need something to go in it to get you there. So the way to get to the beach is you need something there in between to get you there, the fuel. And what they're saying is all of these things, this list, that's the fuel that enables the worship at the temple. For what? For us to experience the presence of God. For God to dwell with his people, for them to not be struck dead by his holiness, they had to offer sacrifices for their cleansing of their sin according to how God has said they are to worship. And for them to worship, they needed all of these things throughout the year. And so they, for them to enjoy the presence of God, they had to maintain and sustain the ministry of the temple. And they covenanted the commitment to meet those needs. The point of all of that, the point of making the, the temple beautiful and the, the, all these offerings throughout the year and celebrations and all these things, the priest's offerings, the sacrifices, the seasonal trips to Jerusalem, the feasts, is all about being with God. It's all about experiencing and being with him and the forgiveness of God and glorifying God and for them to enjoy his presence and know him. That's old covenant worship. But we are in the new covenant. And we don't go to a temple or maintain a temple for spiritual significance or for spiritual gain. But as the church, the people of Christ, we are the temple. We are the temple. The presence of God with his people is not through our sacrifices and what we bring to the table each Sunday. But the presence of God, not through our sacrifices, has been accomplished through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And it's by his Holy Spirit and through the ministry of his word when we gather that we, the church, we are being beautified in his righteousness. I think that's amazing. 
I think it's amazing. They're bringing all these things. They're doing all these things. This commitment to do all of that. Christ has satisfied all that. Christ fulfilled all of that. We're not bringing chunks of wood for offerings or sacrifices or sacks of grain and first fruits and all of these things. We have come because we are the temple. And Christ has been that sacrifice. And his spirit continually beautifies us in his righteousness. But yet these commitments are still pointing to our obligations, according to the New Testament, to still support the work of ministry in our church, in the church. We don't want to discount that very point. That's very important. It's certainly the point of the tithes and offerings and the bringing of them and the gathering and all those things. Extremely important. And all our members should be committed to that. But there's more here. To be committed to the temple today is to be committed to the church. To be committed to God's people. Not to this building because Lord willing, one day we'll grow out of this place like a, like, a, like a clam who needs another shell. Clams grow their own shells, don't they? Hermit crabs, they need another shell. They get, they'll get out and they'll go find another one, kick another one out, and then go right in. Just like that. My brain, I'm sorry. And we're committed to that, to the church. We will always... Well, worship, excuse me, worship will always require sacrifice from us, doesn't it? Gathering Sunday morning requires sacrifice. Whether it be financially, time, the giving of self, emotional or physical energies that you, that you give, the, the preparation the night before or the days, or even days before. And when we give ourselves in these ways... We are declaring that we are declaring, excuse me, to the Lord and to each other and to the watching world that Jesus Christ is Lord over all of our time, over all of our money, over all of our talents, over all of our gifts, etc. And the question is, is our commitment to the church, it's the same question we had earlier. Do we trust God? Why do you gather with God's people? Why do you give? Why do you sacrifice? Why prepare the Lord's Supper? Why make food to eat and to share with each other later and everything else that you may do? It is because together in the church, with the church, we come to know him together and we experience his presence together. And outside and apart from the body of Christ, there's no other place where we can do that. So let me wrap this up by giving you three basic points of application here. They're going to be really quickly. First, always be repenting of your sin. Always be repenting of your sin. I think primarily this is what we see in Nehemiah 10. is not just their, their grieving of their sin in chapter 9, but now we see them turning from sin to the Lord and to his word. Like these things are God's word that they are committing to. And when we repent of our sin, and when I say always repenting of our sin, you're turning to God's word. 
You're not just saying, I repent of God's love of my sin. You are turning to God's word in, in ways that are obedient to him, that are specifically obedient to him, that he is faithful, that he is loving, and we will commit to the act of repenting. Do you see any area of your life in these three categories of family, work, and church where you may be struggling? Where sin has crept in and and has a hold on those areas. Maybe it has to do with time. Maybe it has to do with money. Maybe it has to do with anxieties and fears. Whatever it may be. Those things that are hard to let go. Have you repented of them? Have you repented of your sin to Jesus Christ? Second, renew your commitment to the Lord in obedience in very specific ways. Nehemiah 10 is a renewal in a way of of the old covenant. But for us, it serves as a template of how we as Christians who are redeemed in Christ as new creations indwelled by the Holy Spirit should always be analyzing our hearts according to God's word. Not overanalyzing to the point of being paralyzed, but to search out our hearts underneath the magnifying glass of God's word and his scriptures to look deeply to see where we may be deficient. Here's the thing. If you look hard enough, you will always find something. And that's good. Because those areas that you will find you will see how his grace is sufficient and that his word is true and his word is sufficient and that his spirit will continue to transform you and you will experience as well that his promises are true. So brothers and sisters, don't don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the magnifying glass of God's word. And when you see sin, when you see neglect, when you see bitterness, when you see lust, when you see hatred, when you see anger, roots of sin, quickly kill it by confession and repentance according to God's word. And very specifically, commit yourself to be obedient to God's word. Third, and lastly, renew your commitment to the covenant with each other. This is a simple point, and at the heart of this covenant is a commitment not only to the Lord, but to each other. You see, the, the, the first person, plural, we, is there all the time. It's throughout it. We commit. We will do this. We won't do this anymore. It's a commitment to the Lord, but it's a commitment also to each other. And, and very simply, brothers and sisters, we have a covenant together, and we read it aloud every month. We're going to read it in just a a few moments after our response time. We're going to read it together before we take the Lord's Supper together as one body. And when we read it, let it remind us and remind you of our covenant commitment together. But also let it renew your commitment to each other. I hope that every time we read this, every point that is read and every pause that's in between, not only in your heart, there is a hearty amen to one another, a renewal in your heart, 
But even this morning, let that amen resound out loud for others to hear, for the person in front of you, for the people behind you, for the people right next to you, for your wives, for your children, for them to hear you resound. Amen. As a commitment to each other. We do not live according to the Navy SEAL ethos. Our cause is not for a country, but that which is something for something that is much bigger, something much greater, and something more glorious. And that is to know our Lord, to give Him glory, and to understand and take the gospel to the nations. There is an old hymn that's usually sung during the invitation time. If you don't know what an invitation is, I'll explain to you later. This hymn is called, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, right? Though none go with me, I still will follow, right? The world behind me, the cross before me, okay. Used to invite people to come forward and make a decision to follow Jesus. And it was played and sung all three verses and sometimes even twice. The ironic thing is that although the author is anonymous, yet it is still believed to be written by someone who was facing very harsh persecution in India. This wasn't a song necessarily to be used to invite people to make a profession of faith, but a hymn of, I'm singing my commitment to follow Jesus because I need to remind myself before I lose my head. We are not making covenant this morning formally, but together as one people in our church, we have decided to follow Jesus. And that sums it all up, that we will follow no turning back and no turning back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy toward us. Thank you for the reminders of these great truths that we have studied and heard this morning and the commitment of those areas of our lives, of our families, and life, and church. Lord, that we would be renewed in them as the people in Israel were being renewed. And yet our renewal is found in the covenant we have with Christ. And it's not through our sacrifices and through our work, but through Him. And therefore, all that we do and all that we have committed ourselves to in Christ is driven by grace and by mercy. And so, Lord, I, help you, I pray that you would help us to renew our covenant to you and to each other and continue to build us up for your glory. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.